0: Welcome to the Sun Devil Source Report Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Warner, and today I'm joined by Sun Devil Source staff reporters Jack Harris, Max Madden, and
1: Mason Kern alongside site publisher Chris Cartman. Guys, how are we doing today? I'm doing great, Rob, although I didn't get to uh, spend time at all of Chris's favorite food joints in LA with the rest of the staff, so I'm a little disappointed. You missed out, man. Philippe's in LA, that place is for real.
2: Yeah, I didn't get a a chance to go either, but I, I missed you guys. Glad to be back.
0: Philippe's is good. Take nothing, away, take nothing away from Philippe's, Manhattan uh, Manhattan Beach Post, that is some place that everybody listening to this podcast should try to go to once in their life. It, it will not disappoint, I promise.
3: Okay, A couple good restaurant recommendations there at the top of the podcast. Let's get into the USC Trojans and how ASU performed.
0: And we're recording this podcast on Tuesday, October thirtieth. ASU is approaching the home contest against number sixteen Utah this this upcoming weekend. ASU earned its first road win of twenty eighteen under Herm Edwards with the win at the LA Memorial Coliseum. And on this episode, we're gonna have a breakdown of ASU's key plays that that helped the team notch this win. How the Sun Devils, relying on sophomore tailback Eno Benjamin, played a critical role in the team's victory. How ASU senior quarterback Manny Wilkins was able to bounce back after harsh criticism he faced in ASU's twenty to thirteen loss against Stanford. The impact of Sun Devils Jr. wideout Nikhil Harry, an evaluation of how Danny Gonzalez's defense competed against USC redshirt freshman quarterback Jack Sears and the rest of USC. And what this win does for ASU in putting the team back in the Pac-12 South contention, how the Pac-12 did in Week 9, very wacky week in the Pac-12 in Week 9. All that and more we're getting into on this podcast. And let's jump right into the offense, guys. Before we get into a complete breakdown of the offense, though, let's start by talking about some of the defining plays of this game. Which plays specifically do you guys think were the most critical in this
1: game? Are we talking about only offensive plays, or
0: no, any plays, most critical plays in the game?
1: Um, I think that there were a lot. I mean, there are a lot of plays that really stand out for their like visceral nature. I think to kill Harry's, obviously one-handed catch. He had a spectacular game. Um, I think that a play that not a lot of people are talking about that seemed to have iced the game before U- or USC scored uh, near the end of the game was the uh, the option that ASU ran when Manny Wilkins kept it instead of handing it up to Eno you know, Benjamin. You know Benjamin had a decent game; he was handing it off a lot. I think that the USC expected him to keep or to to have the ball there for the rush, and then Manny took it himself and you know went all the way down. Uh, you know, for, for a huge game. So I think that that was a really important play in icing the game. And I think we'll get into, you know, some other defensive plays like Kobe Williams also.
2: I thought a really important aspect uh, early on in that game really gave ASU a lot of momentum. Senior telling safety, Jalen Harvey, forced that fumble on Jack Sears, um, the redshirt freshman quarterback, like you mentioned before. And, and then right. Darian Butler ended up recovering that, which did set up Eno Benjamin's first touchdown on uh, that three-yard run. So I think that put them in really good ter- uh, or in deep USC territory, one of the fir- probably the deepest that they've been in an opponent's territory this season. And that really gave ASU a lot of momentum and en- route to winning this game. If you
3: look at some of the things that happened, it's just the randomness of football. So, for example, it's it's a dropped touchdown opportunity by USC in the end zone immediately preceded the Nikhil Harry punt return touchdown. Nikhil Harry probably shouldn't have even caught that ball that he caught. He ran over 20 yards and reached across his body to grab the ball out of the – This guy, and then he takes it all the way across the field. Um, There's just these, in earlier games, right, ASU's not made a couple of these plays. And then in this game, it does. Of course, I think really importantly, USC's decision to go for it on fourth and one after having its field goal unit and a chance to tie the game, taking a timeout, deciding, no, we're going to put our offense back onto the field. Right. Not going for it with Merlin Robertson and Daz Tautalatasi getting the, the tackle there. That was ironic because ASU had failed on the road at San Diego state to get a fourth and one conversion. Uh, And then I had failed against Colorado to get a conversion on fourth down. So, you know, Uh, Outside of Nikhil Harry's brilliance, there's a few plays that could have gone either way that USC wasn't able to convert. That fourth and one, the catch in the end zone that Kobe Williams got his hand in there late to strip. Um, And then you have, remember, Nikhil Harry had, he leaped over the the USC defensive player on a third down, which was followed by Eno Benjamin's 49-yard run. If if Manny Wilkins, Manny Wilkins doesn't make that play, ASU punts. That's three scores. Like there's like all kind of scores all over the place that right. could have happened in this game, and USC tends to play these games that I think are loose, in in the, the the way that they feel and they don't have the type of structure that other teams do, and but usually they have more talent than the opponents, so so it just kind of overwhelms them. This game, they had the injuries that were costly, which we can talk about probably, but ASU made the, the key plays. And some of those
0: injuries that Chris is alluding to. I mean, quarterback, true freshman. JT Daniels was out of the game. Cam Smith, one of the star linebackers on USC. Porter Gustin's been out for the for the, the rest of the season after he suffered a broken ankle against Colorado. Marvell Tell, uh, star safety for USC, was out. So there was a lot of things working in ASU's favor in this game. But Jack, what's one play that, that you point to as a reason that ASU won this game?
4: Um, I'll go to what I thought was the most impressive run, you know, Benjamin had and it's early in the game on ASU's second drive. It's a third and one. Um, he takes a handoff to the left side. There's just a pile of bodies that happens like two yards behind the line of scrimmage. Tommy Hudson can really get a good lead block. Um, and Benjamin is able to stop himself from just going into the pile, cuts back to the right, breaks a tackle and is able to gain, like 15 yards on a third and one, and then a couple plays later on that drive, they hit the touchdown pass to Nikhil Harry. Um, And it's things like that. I thought, like, their third down play was a lot better in this game. Um, They converted all of their third and ones or third and twos, which had been a a trouble spot for them this season. Um, And it's stuff like that. Like, I don't know if every running back would have been able to, in that situation, be able to stop themselves then bounce it the other way um, and it was able to extend a drive and that, that ASU scores on. Like if you can play right. the what if game, if they don't convert there, they're punting back to USC, down seven early in the game, and who knows what direction it goes.
0: Right, and, and the third down conversions you you mentioned, I think are very important. ASU eight of 15 converting on third down. They held USC to just two of 11. Those were two areas that ASU had really struggled in uh, coming into this game, but. I want to talk about the play of Wilkins. He completed 14 of 22 passes for 166 yards, one passing touchdown, one rushing touchdown, one fumble loss. He was knocked out of the game for a drive. He also had nine carries for 89 yards on the ground. And, Chris, you kind of talked to Jack and, 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 and me about this after the game, just about how some of the things that he did weren't in the stat sheet, and some of the things that he did were just
3: things that he imparted on the team. H- how did you evaluate his performance? He played well. The, the, the fumble notwithstanding, which you still can't have. Uh, ASU's game plan involved a lot more zone read. Remember, right from the get-go, he's pulling the ball around the end on a crashing end. There, It wasn't even a true RPO because there's no route option that you would work like a pop pass off of it. Um, I thought that Wilkins was, was accurate on some big throws. Nikhil Harry over the middle, the Nikhil Harry 44-yard reception. Um when they needed to move the chains, I think he made good decisions. Mm-hmm. So he he had one of his better games, and they and they needed him to have one of his better games. That that's more in line with the expectation of what you have for a senior quarterback. Uh, and then and then he it was gutsy, right? Like he's telling the he said that he was telling the the trainers, the doctors, whoever was looking at him, look, I don't have time for this. I got to get back out there. A lot of guys take a big hit like that. And you're a quarterback, and it's not common, and you're not playing anymore. And and he, you know, stayed in there, and overall I would say that he did a good job. Also, I thought he had more pop on his passes in this game. I thought that his arm had better velocity, and he was getting the ball where it needed to be a little bit faster.
1: Yeah, I thought the biggest thing that Wilkins did was avoid mistakes in this game, you know. He threw for 350 yards, uh, you know, in his last game and comes out and just has a really efficient game. I think that, you know, Chris mentioned that he played well and, you know, that's what he did. He had a big day day on the ground, especially with that last rush. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, I think that Wilkins, you know, rebounded fine decision-making wise, even though he didn't really have a big game and just played, you know, a, a complete performance.
0: And sophomore running back, you know, Benjamin carried the ball 29 times for 192 yards, two touchdowns, he was rushing for over seven yards per carry. And he said during the week he wasn't a big fan of USC, and, and he was really crucial in, in helping ASU jump out to this very big lead um, that, that helped ASU ultimately secure this win. Uh, and especially, it seemed to have a, a jolt, the ASU offense, after he rushed just 11 times for 38 yards in, in ASU's loss against Stanford. And, and Jack, Benjamin has a chance to break the ASU program rusher in rushing yards in a single season and rushing attempts in a single season. Can you tell us more about that?
4: Yeah, I mean, he, he's on pace for, um, like you said, Rob, a really big year. Uh, he could get to over 1,500 yards. That's kind of where, you, you know, if you if you track out his games with a bowl game, he get over to 1,500 yards. Um, the school record held by Woody Green, 1972, is uh, 1,565. Um, I, I think this week it will kind of determine a lot and if he can break a record because Utah's so good against the run. Um and he's been kind of up and down, especially against some of the better run defense teams like Stanford was not a huge game for him. I think the big thing, though, is he's just seeing so many carries. He's the first running back this century for ASU to have three straight games of 30-plus carries. He, he did that earlier this season. He had 29 against USC. Um, it, it's not just that ASU's running the ball as much or more than they have in the past, but also just the share of the carries isn't quite as split between different running backs as we've seen in years past.
3: His durability is really starting to impress me. There was a, a play in that game where he tweaked the lower leg, I believe, and then he ends up going and sitting on the bench, and he almost like was just like looking down for a while at the ground, and I'm saying to myself, okay, this guy's hurt, like he's not going to be himself coming back into the game, and then he just sucks it up, goes back in there and gets a bunch more carries. Uh, I think you have to credit ASU's coaching staff for realizing, okay, there's a big drop off for us between Eno Benjamin and whenever he goes out of the game. Right. He tapped out at one point, Isaiah Floyd goes in, runs twice, ASU finds itself in a third down that doesn't convert and it has to punt. Right When Eno Benjamin's out there, ASU is just a lot better football team, and yet he's somebody who is rare in his ability to handle a 30-plus carry type of a game mm-hmm. and still be breaking tackles and still be right. powering through block, You know, guys trying to bring him down. And even even the 49-yard the touchdown run was very well blocked by ASU. He still gets an arm tackle that he, that he breaks out of and runs 40 more yards. This guy is really, really special. I mean, in, in, in all my years covering ASU football, uh, he, he is, in my mind, starting to encroach upon the best running backs that I've ever seen in 30 kind of years. Around ASU, I mean, right. it's that. That's, ty- that's it's, a big accolade. It's that. It's that type of a thing, uh, and and the numbers sort of bear that out. Ryan mm-hmm. Terrain was it was incredible. Uh, 2006, he had a great season. Uh, he played a little bit in the NFL and, and and whatnot. And ASU's had some other good running backs in that time. J.R. Redmond, of course, was really good, and people will remember Terry Battle and Michael Martin and DJ Foster, and there's there's other guys. But you know, Benjamin is. Uh, it's it's pretty remarkable and I'll be very surprised if he doesn't end up somewhere in that top five to seven minimum range Mm -hmm. in both of these both of those records that you guys uh, uh, mentioned
0: and specific to this game Max I want to ask you how much do you think he did give the offense kind of a spark after it really couldn't run the ball well against Stanford coming out against USC and just being so effective with it
1: well you know when your running game is working well it makes it a lot easier to take those deep shots to Nikhil Harry and be able to be a little bit more experimental with your offense. You know, Rob, like it said after the game that, you know, pretty much all bets are off and that, you know, the offense is really going to try a lot of different things moving forward and having, you know, Benjamin be efficient and explosive really helps that because, you know, you call a run play, obviously the defense focuses in and then you can go somewhere else with it. And I think that you saw that on that last play, uh, you know, where Manny Wilkins took it to the house on that rush is that, you know, you know, Benjamin really
3: does present a threat because it's kind of a distraction, you know, away from ASU's other playmakers. Just before we transition off of this, I just want to also add, I think it's important to point out, this was one of ASU's offensive line's better performances. Alex Asoya, I think he probably had his best game. And Steve Miller played a good amount. At right guard also, but Roy Hemsley at left guard playing against his former team took most of the snaps there and did quite a good job and Cole Cabral continues to plug away. Cole Cabral is starting to look like the NFL center prospect that Herm Edwards predicted that he was going to be that capability from an athletic standpoint is so much different. and Where you actually see it is in what opponents can do to ASU that they were able to do in years past. So popping linebackers into that A-gap really quickly against A.J. McCollum, who didn't have the length and the athleticism to handle that properly, um, Cabral does. And he just literally uh, um, stymied the guy that was in front of him time and time again in this game. It was a very impressive performance by ASU's offensive line. And, and, I mean, just a quick note on,
0: on Cabral. W- when he's snapping the ball so effectively, you you don't really realize it. But when USC had all those issues getting clean snaps, I think that's when you realize more so
3: this guy's really solid.
0: This hasn't been an issue for ASU all season.
3: There's certain things you only really notice in football if it doesn't go well. Right. A long snapper, a punter. Mm-hmm. Uh, a guy who's under center making bad snaps and that when you never talk about those things, that's the mark of somebody that's doing their job properly. And you're right, Rob, the USC had a lot of problems snapping the ball in that game low, very consistently as you didn't have any of those problems. That's not the kind of thing that when you have a third string quarterback getting his first start and Jack Sears having to reach to the ground time and time again, it, it, it disrupts the rhythm of the right. play over and over. Right. And, Max kind of mentioned it but the fact that Benjamin
0: was able to get so many yards at the beginning of the game opened things up for Nikhil Harry and Harry had four catches for 95 yards one receiving touchdown that was a 44 yarder to start ASU scoring in the game but he also had the 92 yard punt return touchdown that that I believe we have already talked about a little bit I forgot who brought it up initially It, it allowed ASU to retake the lead late in the third quarter and This seems like it may have been one of Harry's best performances at ASU. Is that crazy to say?
3: Well, look, he only had a pretty small number of targets and catches. He had four catches. It's just that every play that he made was like a big play. And I don't even think Sean Slocum, if he's being honest, would have said that he wanted Nikhil Harry to go catch that ball. And then remember the very next time he got a chance to catch a punt – he makes a mistake and fair catches a ball in his own corner, like right. the two-yard line. So there's still mistakes that are being made. But Nikhil Harry wasn't even touched on that play, and he probably ran around 150, 140 yards. I think I clocked it at 17 seconds running around on the field without anybody touching you. Guys, think about it. How often <laughs> is anybody going to run around with the ball in their hands on a football field for 17 seconds and not be touched? Like That's never going to happen. Yeah. Um, so... I called it preternatural brilliance of Nikhil Harry. He's basically supernatural at this point. He deserves, it, you know, all the the second and the third nicknames that you want to give him. Real deal in the You know, you called him Dirty Harry after the game. Harry Houdini. Harry Houdini. <laughs> you know, whatever, some sorcery, wizardry type stuff. Whatever. But yeah, he's, you know, also uh, Rob Likens did a good job. So you mentioned earlier. That, uh, that USC's best safety, Marv Attell, wasn't playing. Mm-hmm. So what they did was something that ASU has been ha, – other teams have taken advantage of against ASU over the years is um, they've, they've targeted the boundary-side safety on man-to-man coverage situations. Right. ASU had a second-and-12, and, uh, and Ajani Harris, I believe is how you say his name, yeah, that is. He, repl- he was a replacement – He's in man coverage against Harry. They go to a two-by-two. Two, they put him into this nearest the this slot, mm-hmm. and he just, on a go route, dusted him at the line of scrimmage, and Manny Wilkins put it right on the money. Yeah. But that's a coaching recognition. Um, Jordan Simone over the years and other players who have played bandit, bandit safety before this year struggled in man-covered situations in a, in, in a similar way. That's something that you have to give Rob Likens credit for.
4: And, and I think, like the last couple of weeks, ASU's offense is – you're starting to see more of it getting into this RPO type of concepts as its base. Um, Rob Likens said after the game, you know, that's his vision for the offense, kind of what they did against USC, where you saw a lot more kind of hitch routes. You saw them working out of the, those RPO looks. On There was a bootleg to Nick Ralston that worked. Um, obviously, you know, the ones they handed off to, you know, Benjamin worked. And we've been talking this season about ASU trying to find its identity. They've been going back and forth. They tried to go – you know, with the gap scheme power stuff. I think the last two weeks, because I thought they moved the ball pretty well against Stanford. It was just the the mistakes in the red zone and scoring area. Um, but the last two weeks, I think they, they've, coming out of the bye week, they've been able to find a little bit better uh, balance and identity with, with some of that stuff offensively.
0: And we're going to shift from offense to defense. ASU's defense had a seemingly very good first half against Sears in the USC offense, just allowing seven minutes because of the Vaughn's 82-yard pound return touchdown. And... Uh, it just seemed like ASU's defense was was doing a good job in the first half, containing Sears, putting pressure on him. Chris, you talked to me about that a little bit after the game. ASU only generated two sacks— put on a lot of pressure in the first half and had five tackles for loss. And that might not seem like a big number, but it was for 32 combined yards. On the other side, USC had five tackles for loss, just nine combined yards. How good was ASU's defense in the first half of play?
3: Well, I think ASU recognized that Sears wasn't going to be comfortable in the pocket for any extended amount of time. He really was a one-read quarterback. Quite a bit, and then he was tucking and running, sort of almost reminiscent of a Manny Wilkins a couple of years ago. Remember when Manny Wilkins would sometimes take a look, and then, you know, he'd be ball under his arm. What USC tried to do was to get Sears in space and bootlegs and rollout actions with receivers running with them in space so that he could see that and throw to those guys a lot of half field reads. But it wasn't successful for the most part because ASU did a good job of covering it, did a good job of pressuring him um, quickly enough that that uh, that they couldn't get anything to happen. And then what and then what also took place, Rob, is USC's had a difficult time sustaining drives throughout the season. And so it found itself behind behind the chains quite a bit. Uh, you look at ASU only had maybe 5 or 6 tackles for loss in the game and two sacks, but there weren't a lot of successful plays by USC that happened over and over and over in drives. And there were and remember what I said before the game was USC was going to have to hit on probably two or three big shots. Over the top ASU's defense. Mm-hmm. Well, they had the trick play that was a touchdown, a sudden change after Manny Wilkins fumbled the ball, right. which was a good play. Kobe Williams was in position, but he couldn't make the strip. And Pittman
0: had his second touchdown of the game.
3: Correct, but they didn't have like three plays over the top of ASU's defense, right. which that's a very good point. I, I think could have that would have been a difference also in the game. Right, and, and Sears and USC's offense
0: followed the. Uh, the end of the half, they had a touchdown right at the end of the half with under two minutes remaining, and then they added on 14 points in that span that you're talking about in the first five minutes in the third quarter. How alarming was it, Max, that ASU's defense gave up the 21-point unanswered offensive swing?
1: I think the Jack Sears looked really good on those plays, um, and you know it's kind of different because he's a guy that you expect to run the ball a lot. But those were a lot of you know pass accurate passes underneath into the boundary that he was able to make. And you know USC, yes, they've struggled this year, but there's just so much talent on that team that you expect them to have these little spurts. I think the problem that the Trojans have ha- have had on offense is they haven't been able to sustain those type of drives throughout the, and that you know that type of offensive production throughout the entire game. But I mean, you expect little bursts just given USC's talent and ASU's, you know, shortcomings on defense overall. Um, but overall, I think I just took from that that I was pretty impressed with Jack Sears. Uh,
0: and the Sun Devils D gave up just 67 yards in the fourth quarter prior to Wilkins' 45-yard touchdown run. They gave ASU the lead. It, it wouldn't relinquish. Uh, that that was including everything ASU's defense did in the fourth quarter, only giving up the seven points uh, when when USC was down on the ASU 21-yard line, ASU had that turnover on downs that Chris is talking about, Merlin Robertson and Dasmond Tatalatasi combined on that tackle. Did the defense perform best when it needed to, Jack?
4: Yeah, and I think um, I think the two biggest defensive plays of the game, where Jalen Harvey forces the fumble and then the fourth down stop, really shows off the versatility that, that they have. Merlin Robertson is lined up as the, as the middle linebacker on both of those plays. Usually he plays on the outside. On the fourth down stop, you had Tyler Johnson, an outside linebacker, able to go down and play. It was either in a three or four point stance. Um, you had George Lee, a guy who's been playing nose tackle all year, playing defensive end. To be able to do all those things, especially in the critical downs, to get to you know to force a turnover because now Jalen Harvey can come off the edge when usually he's playing in the middle. For Merlin Robertson to be able to make a read at middle linebacker and then come up and make a tackle um, with the help of a of what had been the third string Tillman safety. Those are important plays to make. Um, and, and it's what the coaching staff has been saying all along since mm-hmm. Dan Gonzalez got here. Right. We want all of our linebackers to be able to play different spots. We want our defensive linemen to be able to move around along the line of scrimmage. And the fact that they were able to do it when it mattered most, I thought was a really critical development.
3: So, in, in, important note there, Jalen Harvey got hurt, knocked out. He, he's been playing his best football of the season leading up to this. Yeah. Today was the first practice Tuesday as we recorded this that we were – Watching them out there, he was in a green jersey that's non-contact, but he took reps with the first team. That's an indication that he's going to try to play this week against Utah. And that if he is able to play, uh, that's a big deal. He had a shoulder. That's probably a pain management tolerance type of an issue. But his ability in the box is big. I know that Evan Fields had seven tackles, and that was second for ASU. But, that, but he was a big step down, especially from a coverage standpoint, actually. Um, and then I think – has to be said, ASU's play before the half has been a problem this year defensively. They've given up numerous—not numerous, but a few—long scoring drives. And
0: Edwards mentioned that a number of times, saying that has to be something they stopped doing.
3: And and Ashari Crosswell had a pass interference, uh, that was costly after a seer scramble on that on that drive. Crosswell's in position, but he's got to be more. Uh, aware situationally of what he's doing there. And then also ASU put in Camp Phillips, um, the true freshman at the end of the game, they go into a prevent defense and they get scored on after Manny Wilkins didn't take a knee before going into the end zone, which he should have done because ASU would have been able to run out the clock right. instead of taking it. The 10 point lead USC then of course comes back. They go into a prevent right. th- that happens. And then by the way, you guys remember who got the on-site kick for ASU after? Who could it have been? Harry Houdini himself. And that's probably a good way to, to transition here.
0: Uh, we'll move around the Pac-12 right now, and the scores from Week Nine: Number 23, then Number 23, Utah handily defeated UCLA on Friday night, 41 to 10. Then Number 19, Oregon at Arizona lost 44 to 15. And again, we all lost uh, with our Thursday picks. We'll make those again this Thursday, so tune in for that episode of the Premium Podcast. Number 13 Washington State over number 24 Stanford, 41 to 38, and Colorado at home was leading Oregon State 31 to 3 in the third quarter, ended up losing that game 41 to 34 in overtime. To who? Oregon State? Are you serious? I know. I just couldn't believe that game. What? Oh yeah, I knew Chris that. Chris <laughs> told me that in the press box and I really didn't believe him. I thought I didn't think he was being serious. I thought he was making a joke that Oregon State was winning.
3: I still don't believe it. That's why I'm doing this right now. <laughs> Uh,
0: number 15, uh, Washington fell in Berkeley to Cal 12-10 to 10 as Chris Peterson benched Jake Browning. Berserkly. I think it's berserkly, <laughs> berserkly. right? Berserkly. And then ASU wins at USC 38-35 to 35 with the first road win. What did you guys make of how the Wacky Pac-12 did in, in Week 9?
2: I mean, you mentioned it, Rob. It was, it was wacky. And, I mean, all five of the underdogs uh, of the conference won their games And, I mean, you look at the the Washington-Cal game, very low scoring. Chris Peterson benches Drake Browning, and that's kind of reminiscent uh, score-wise of of when ASU beat Washington last year um, in terms of that low-scoring affair. But, I mean, the the Oregon-Arizona game, Arizona puts up 44 points on the Oregon defense. I mean, I don't think many people expected that. And, I mean, it was just a a conference full of underdog winners. And
4: for Oregon's offense to be so bad against what's been a bad Arizona defense all
3: year. The only games that really went in a way that were reasonably expected was Utah dominating UCLA, the ASU USC game being close and down to the end, the Washington State Stanford game you had to figure was going to be a pretty good game. You know they scored around forty points normal, and then Cal Washington I think you could have guessed that maybe that was going to be a lower scoring variety.
0: Somebody said that on the Thursday podcast. But
3: but the idea of Cal beating Washington, uh, you know, and then how about Benching Jake Browning, yeah. and then the backup throwing a, a, pick, a pick six six that ends up being the game-winning score. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a little bit of, uh, you know, the, the the shine is a little bit coming off uh, that Washington coaching staff right there.
0: Yeah, um, what I, I saw a tweet yesterday. This is by Max Max Mayer. If Arizona holds on to beat Oregon, this was while that game is going on. The Wildcats were up 30 to eight at this time on a hundred dollar bet on a parlay of every Pac-12 underdog would have made you a whopping one hundred sixteen dollars
4: Moneyline parlay. It's an yes. important note, yes.
0: Excuse me, sorry. Moneyline parlay would have made you a net of one hundred sixteen thousand dollars Although
4: I really would have questioned if anybody did a Moneyline parlay on five
3: underdogs. <laughs> well, uh, it well, it is interesting, though. Oregon State at Colorado. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I understand LaVisca Chenault's out, but if they play that that game ten times in Boulder, Oregon State wins one time. At the most, maybe. Yeah, I think that's maybe the not at even at the one. most. Yeah, uh, we're gonna do
0: a little bit of a big ending right now, and and how? Wow, is this like, <laughs> is this balloons and music or I, what? I, I wish. Uh, how did this win, coupled with Colorado's loss? I'm put, excited about this. Uh, don't be that excited. How how did how did this win over USC, coupled with Colorado's loss, put ASU back in contention with the Pac-12 South, and further than that, just beating a USC team on the road—that's a blue-collar program like this.
3: What does that do for the program? Some of the advanced metrics show that Utah is still like is the overwhelming favorite in the in the South. Uh, and I and that's understandable, but the, but Utah's schedule is a little bit tougher than USC, and if ASU beats Utah, that will that will plummet because there's a there's a reasonable chance USC doesn't lose again. If Utah loses to ASU this week, then ASU is is its its odds go up from very low to pretty reasonable. Um, but yeah, I mean there's UCLA. I think ESPN's Analysis has UCLA, Colorado, and uh, and um, who am I missing? And UCLA, Colorado, and Arizona all combined for zero percent chance. So it's really a three-team race, and only a three-team race still if ASU beats Utah. And if that happens, then we're then we're you know look, we're going to be going all the way to the end. But um, just for the bowl eligi- eligibility standpoint, it really does matter. It also matters. Herm Edwards is the first coach to beat USC in his first attempt at ASU since John Cooper in 1985. That's a long time. So that, so that, so that's interesting. You know, little stat there. So um, it, it helps you in recruiting, uh, and it, it helps kind of keep everybody invested and motivated. Your fans, right. your everybody recruits everybody.
4: Yeah, I really think it it changes the way the, the end of the season goes because if ASU were to lose this game or lose to USC, I mean, it's it becomes like a final four games where the, the, the attitude around the program is going to be pretty down. They probably aren't going to make it to a bowl game. And you end what has been, I think, a decent season for ASU. It would have ended on a very sour note. Going into 2019 is going to be a year of a lot of uncertainty. So winning this game – it helps give Herm Edwards that signature Pac-12 win over a program that ASU has really struggled against historically. It, it gives them meaningful games, or at least one meaningful game, to play in November, which hasn't been the case the last couple years. And I think even if they, they they lose to Utah this week and they don't make a run at the Pac-12 South, if they go to a bowl game and you have the win over USC and you have the win over Michigan State and, and ASU was competitive and it's other games that it lost, I think that's a pretty that would be a pretty good outcome for this season especially depending or looking back at, at kind of what the expectations were um, externally and nationally coming into the year
0: yesterday the 29th of october asu landed its first 2020 commit chad johnson jr a top five wide receiver in southern california a four-star prospect according to 24 7 composite rankings and and really just a commit that, that asu's recruiting says that this is a big time ad
4: yeah and i think the thing to keep in mind here is yeah, you know, the coaches and Al Luganbill have noted that because of the coaching transition, they were a little bit behind in the 2019 class, but that they are on schedule in 2020 moving forward. And this is kind of a you know the first 2020 signing is a big name.
2: And he's the son of Chad Johnson Senior, aka o- Ocho Cinco, uh, 19th ranked wide receiver in the state of California, 31st in the 2020 class, and also the 193rd ranked prospect in the entire 2020 class. So I think that's important to note as well.
0: So we're gonna have more on. On what Chad Johnson Jr. does for this ASU recruiting class. Uh, more on that and a comprehensive preview of number 16 Utah. That will be on our member only podcast on Thursday. So get set for that. But right now, for staff reporters Jack Harris, Max Madden, and Mason Kern, alongside site publisher Chris Cartman, I'm your host, Rob Warner, saying so long and thank you for tuning in.